Thank you, Dan and Rachel, and uh, donor, good job. We're excited to have you here. I am your third pastor to speak to you this morning, and so, uh, which is different than third string. So I just wanted to... This morning we're continuing a series in the book of Romans. It is called Set Free as our overall theme, and this morning we want to deal with this whole area of God's wrath. Um, the wrath of God is not always a popular subject in churches today. Nobody says, let's go to the wrath seminar. It's an all-day, you know. <laughs> let's buy the videotapes on God's wrath because we want to share it with our neighbors. Most of us are not inclined to want to do that. And I'm reminded about that. I was with a friend uh, just about a week ago, and uh, we're spending the afternoon together, and uh, he was sharing with me about his life, and we're kind of getting caught up, I guess, if you would uh, like to put it that way. He told me about his wife. He got married uh, some years ago. Three months into their marriage, his wife began to manifest some very difficult problems emotionally. Uh, she would go into anxiety attacks and have uh, bouts of depression. He told me that his wife has been in the hospital 28 times since they've been married. He said, my calling in life now is to take care of my wife. That's along with his full-time job that he has. And it really struck me as uh, quite a challenge for him. And he says, the thing that they have come to understand that his wife has understood and he is now understanding is that she grew up in a home where her earthly father was condemning, judgmental. Her earthly father and mother were divorced and the earthly father put on her the blame for their breakup. And that not only that, she grew up in a church where the church, he said, the church that uh, she was part of as she grew up was kind of an Old Testament God church, the way he put it. And what he meant by that is that uh, all that she heard in the church was the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the condemnation of God, and that you are not good. And so that combination of events of the church being the wrath God church her earthly father being the wrath of the earthly father has just devastated her now in her adult years where it's just hard for her to not be depressed and to not be anxious and to be uh, spiraling down on any given moment. Knowing that and being reminded of that just a week and a half ago, it made me once again think that as we deal with the wrath of God today, it's important that none of us takes any section of the book of Romans, let alone the Word of God, and builds all of our theology around it alone. Romans chapter 1, where we're going to, I'm going to read it in just a moment here. Romans 1 is all about the wrath of God being revealed against unrighteousness. But it would be heretical to look at the book of Romans and just sort of rest in Romans 1, 2, 3, which talks about sin but not read the rest of his letter in the context as well. Because as you see on the back side of the outline I put there, as I talked about it last week, it begins in sin, then it goes to salvation in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Then it goes into sanctification in chapters 7 and 8 where we are literally cut free of condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And then it goes into the sovereignty of God in Romans 9 through 11. And then in chapter 12 it begins with this living sacrifice that we're here to serve the Lord. And so 
nobody should read a letter where you read just the first paragraph and then extrapolate that this must be the condition of that person because you don't know everything until you read the whole letter. The book of Romans was written with the intent that the readers in Rome read the whole thing and don't stop when it sort of cherry picks in an area that you want to be part of. And it'd be just as dangerous to read Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ and think, therefore, I can sin all that I want because there is no condemnation. You got to read the whole thing. And so as we deal with the wrath of God today, please know that we're moving forward into other very important topics that are equally viable for our Christian growth today. So let me read Romans 1, 18 through into chapter 2. Romans 1, and I encourage you to read along in your own Bibles. There's a Bible in the chair rack in front of you as well. But the Apostle Paul is writing to the citizens of Rome, probably little house churches in Rome. There might have been a scattering of people meeting in homes. They didn't have a big worship center like this. They would just gather together in homes. And Paul is sitting there in Corinth writing this letter as the Spirit of God trains his heart and his mind to communicate really the, the crown jewel of biblical theology of what it means to live the Christian life. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the in, an image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the Creator rather than the Creator who was blessed forever. Amen. I just wanted to pause there. Uh, the uh, importance of the Creator and what we have done. But he goes on, For this reason, for this reason, then the logic continues, As a result of what they did in exchanging these things, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're all gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do them the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. 
And wow, isn't that uh, heavy and discouraging at times? I have an outline that I have in the bulletin there, and there are three questions to be asked and answered. And they are, what behavior reveals the wrath of God? What consequences come from the wrath of God? And then what should our response be to this wrath and this sin? You might find that of some benefit as we continue this journey. So, what behavior reveals the wrath of God? What is the wrath of God? The word wrath or orge is a Greek word, and it means, and I kind of try to define it. There's a whole much more that could be said, but for the sake of time, it's an abiding state of mind. It's not subject to quick reactions. It's an abiding state where God is in this state of anger against the sin that is being committed. It is His wrath. There is another word for anger, and that word for anger is quick impulses, quick reactions. Blows up, goes away. But this is the kind of abiding wrath where God's wrath rests upon the behavior of those who are in violation of His righteousness. So that's what His wrath is. When does His wrath get revealed? What behavior? There's two behaviors. When we suppress the truth about God, which is evident to all. God gets angry when we suppress truth about Him. That's what He's saying here in verses 19, 18 and 19 and 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, and here is the key, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it so. And then it goes on to say, I don't have it on the screen, he continues on, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. No matter what your view is on creation or not, God says, I believe in creation and I believe that what I created, my divine attributes, my invisible attributes, my eternal power, my divine nature, it's clearly seen. It's being understood. It is visible to them. And so God says, what I have created is to be, reveal myself to you. And you just look at creation of the world today, you look at the mystery of how the eyeball works, the ear works, the brain works, that no man can recreate what God has done, and to think that that somehow evolved out of a sludge of slime, and that we are who we are because we're just a little bit better than the ape, is just, uh, is just uh, lunacy to me and my own thinking, as well as I believe inconsistent with God's Word. So God says, don't suppress the truth. When you suppress the truth of my revelation, general revelation, or sometimes in the legal world, and I don't know a whole lot about this, so I'm going to go out on a limb and let some of you cut it off for me because uh, that's just the way life is in the church. But uh, there's a thing called natural law, that the natural law reveals things to us that we know to be true. Where did we come up with the concept that murder is wrong? Well, God has revealed that it's within us. We know it's innately wrong. Where did we come up with the concept that rape is wrong? Well, we just know that to be wrong. Where did we come up with the concept that lying is wrong? Why isn't lying okay? If lying can help you get a better business deal or swing a better real estate deal or get a better car deal, then lie. No, we've determined lying is not good, unless you're president.
My email address is dmitchell at calvarylife.org. I mean that with all due respect, but it just ticks me off. The worst thing, the worst sin for me is lying. There is no worse sin than lying to me. It just drives me nuts. Why do people? But we know, we know that it's wrong. All of our presidents, and not just the current one, but the preceding ones, they all know it's wrong. I think the bunch of them lies to us. We have politicians that lie, and yet we know that it's wrong. We don't want to be caught wrong. Chris Christie does his thing with whatever that bridge thing is. I've never been there, don't understand any of it. But all I hear is that Chris Christie's uh, people stopped up the bridge and, and that if he is found to have lied about not knowing about that, he's done. See, we know lying is wrong because it's within us. Where it goes on to the margins, we don't know if, lying, if certain other things are wrong. And so I'm going to get to that. But when we suppress the truth about the creation of the world and we drift into evolution. Evolution is exchanging the truth about God into the truth of what man wants it to be. Evolution downsizes God and makes man in control. I love what this quote is from NASA astrophysicist Robert Jastrow. Now we see how the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. The essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. Consider the enormous, enormous, enormousness. I never use that word unless I'm an astrophysicist. <laughs> Consider the enormousness of the problem. Science has proved that the universe exploded into being at a certain moment. It asks what cause produced this effect. Or who or what put the matter and energy into the universe? And science cannot answer those questions. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peaks. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been there for centuries. <laughs> now that's an astrophysicist. And so... He's a lot smarter than I am. He just happens to be consistent with what Paul is addressing. Those things that God has made known are there, evident to us, but we suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. good example of that, I, was, I love to read the, at the end of the year, newspapers uh, have the, the famous quotes of that year, and the sports section of the register uh, included a whole bunch of sports quotes of the year. And here is, I love a sports quote of a guy named Dougie Thompson and the Crocodile. Dougie's on the left. And uh, Dougie Thompson here this past year in 2013 was down playing golf in Cancun. And you play golf in Cancun, you play golf with the crocodiles. It's like I used to play golf in Houston. You play golf with the crocodiles and the alligators, whatever they are. And so as he was playing uh, there with a friend who was getting married, uh, this 12-foot-long alligator attacked him, and he, had to, he needed 200 stitches on his side. They had to beat off this crocodile with their golf clubs and their little cart. Well, as a result of that, he's laying in the hospital, and this is the quote that he gave us that reveals to me that God is evident to all. And this is what Dougie Thompson said. It's only by the grace of God that I'm alive and I'm an atheist. So, that's so good. You know, when it comes right down to it, yeah, we know he exists even though I claim that I don't think he exists. And so, 
when Paul writes Romans 1, 18 through 20, he's talking about, I am evident, I am there, I am visible. The problem is whether you're an atheist or an evolutionist, you suppress the truth because you can't get around the fact that there is a creator who has designed and created this world in which we live and the mystery of how it works. It's just staggering. We could go on all hour for that. The second thing that makes God angry or His wrath is revealed is not just suppressing the truth, but now exchanging the truth. We exchange the truth about God for that which is false. The book goes on in, in Romans 21, 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of the form of the corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Think about idolatry. We get all these things that we worship rather than a true God. We, we profess to be wise, but we're fools when we do that. And then it says in verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image and the form of a corruptible man. We take what we know to be true about God and we exchange it. We are the great exchangers in society and throughout history. We're constantly taking what God says is true and exchanging it for that which is false. We exchange the true God for our own gods. We become little G-God. We have our own gods. We exchange a lot of things. We exchange, for example, sanctity of life is coming up here. We exchange for the convenience of the mother... We exchange that at the loss of the life of a child. We exchange truths like that. We exchange the truth about the sanctity of what a marriage relationship is. We, we exchange the truth that God says marriage is one man, one woman for life. And we exchange that with the convenience of divorce. We exchange one man, one woman covenant for life. We exchange that with shacking up together outside of marriage. We take the truth of one man, one woman for life, covenant, commitment. We exchange that truth for homosexual marriage. So, so we, are in the, we are in a society of constant exchange. We take the truth of God's creative work, Genesis 1, 2. We take that clear truth and the science that is clearly indicating a designer and a and a God who has created these things. We take that truth of creation, we exchange it for evolution. We love to exchange what God has given to us for that which is false. And in those days, he's talking about specifically taking the truth of who God is with four-footed creatures that are idols. Why we would not accept what the true God says, because it always works for our own little g-gods, is just a mystery, and it's the mystery of sin. When we exchange what God says for what man wants it to be, the biblical truth that is always absolutely true, we exchange that for secular humanism and relativism so that I can make up my own value system based upon what my little g-god thinks about things. That's why it's a constant battle in these things. It's not all these specific things. It's the fact that I have become my own god, and when I become my own god, I recreate my own value system. And so the problem is not my value system. We need to get people back to the true god, not to my value system. We don't get people walking with Jesus by legislating righteousness to how they should live their lives. We get people back to where they need to be by no longer exchanging the true God for their own human God. Because as a human God, I'll create all the laws that I want and how I want to live my life. 
So let's not change all the laws to change people. Let's get them to exchange back to the one true God. It's so important that we get that. Because I talked about my friend whose wife grew up in a church where there was legalism and condemnation. They tried to get people to change by changing behavior and laws, not drawing them into the one true God who empowers those laws. And we need to be very careful as a church. Here's what one theologian put it. We exchange the one true God for our own God so we can create our own values to guide our lives. And that's the truth. That's what Paul is talking about here. So what consequences come as a result of the wrath of God? Those are the two behaviors that stirs the wrath of God. Number one, that I, that I uh, suppress the truth about God. And that number two, I exchange the truth about God. Those are the two things that stirs the wrath of God. And they're manifested in a multitude of ways. So what consequences will come as a result of God's wrath? We go on to read that these are the two things that God does. In Romans 1, 26 and 27, we are given over to degrading passions. God is the great giver over, if there is such a terminology. Here is what Paul writes. For they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And that stirs God's wrath, to exchange God's truth for a lie. For this reason, as a result, the consequence is, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And we're talking about the common term today of lesbianism, homosexuality of two women. And he goes on to say, In the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire to one another men with men, committed indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Gay lifestyle, which is the politically correct term. Homosexual men, homosexual women, they have exchanged the truth about God, about how sex should operate in marriage. They have exchanged that for their own little g-god and their own little g-god that god has a value system that says sex is nothing but shaking someone's hand and so it's no big deal so get out of my life leave my private life alone who are you to legislate my behavior in the bedroom and that kind of that kind of thinking that that comes out of little g-god and so we begin to exchange these truths if i exchange the true god for my little g-god then i exchange the value systems of the true god from a little g-god value system and that results in the consequence of homosexuality and so God says I'll give you over to the degrading passion of that behavior I give you over to that that's not a place you want to be when God gives you over to something the idea of being given over to something is for God to abandon you to that to leave you in that to let it go to walk away from it so God gives over people to their depraved passions homosexuals read that section of scripture and this is how they spin it to their little g God value system they exchange the truth of God's word for their own truth about this passage and they will say in Romans 1 25, 26, and 27, what Paul was referring to there is this. He's talking about exchanging the natural functions. 
Well, if you're a heterosexual and born as a heterosexual, your natural function is to have sex as a heterosexual, a man with a woman. If you're born as a homosexual, then your natural function, sexual function, is to have sex with another man or another woman. If you're a man, a man, a woman, a woman. And so Paul's talking about heterosexuals who are practicing homosexual behavior and they have exchanged the natural function of what they were born to do to that which is unnatural to them. So that's how little g-gods spin biblical truth. Relativism and secular humanism and my own spin of interpretation because I am my own little g-god and so I will create my own value system according to what I believe and what I feel and what I want regardless of the objective truth of what really is there. A lot of what they say is built around the argument of silence as opposed to overt biblical truth. I put in the back side of the outline all the things and most of the things or at least much of the things but what God says about marriage and how he affirms marriage from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Some people say, well, Jesus never condemned homosexuality in his life. And so therefore, homosexual marriage should be acceptable and permissible, and churches are doing that and participating in it in, in some corners of the world today and in the United States of America. But the fact of the matter is there are a lot of things that Jesus did not talk about. If we begin to believe that everything Jesus did not talk about is acceptable, our whole morality is going to dramatically change. When Jesus talked about marriage, he talked about one man, one woman. When Jesus talked about parenting, he talked about one mother and one father. When he talked about divorce, he talked about a man and a woman in marriage. Jesus always affirmed and confirmed the original order of Genesis 2. So, there is no variation. That's the objective, explicit teaching of God and marriage. And there are some countries in the world where I would now be arrested. The second thing that happens is that we are given over to a depraved mind filled with all kinds of sins. I know a lot of us in, the, in our community in which we, you and I live and which I sometimes am part of as well, we love to rail on the first one of the degraded passions of homosexual behavior. But it is also equally true that God gives over people to depraved mind. What's a depraved mind result in? In 132, it says in verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, here's the second time that God says, Give over. I give you over to degraded passions, homosexuality. I give you over to depraved minds which means to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips. Gossips. Can you believe that God would actually call that a sin? We love to gossip. We love to watch shows that gossip. And then God says, wait a second, I'm sort of in the same list of homosexuality slanderers, talking about somebody in a way that is untrue. I mean, my speaking about another believer, another church, another pastor, that a slander is in the same list of men having passion for men and women with... Whoa, wait a second. I'm not sure I'm getting comfortable with that. Haters of God? Insolent? 
Insolent? Isn't that for diabetics? What is that? (laughs) What is he talking about here? This attitude of arrogance and pride and resentment. Wow. Wow. Suddenly, churches like ours are, whoa, this is actually beginning to step on some of my toes. I can't afford that. And then he goes on, arrogant. Did you realize that there are pastors that are arrogant? There really are. I know it's shocking. But there are some of us who do this for a living. We love the accolades that come, and we get really irritated at the complaints that come afterwards because we're proud people. And how dare you challenge the truth of God's Word? I was just preaching the Word. No, you talked about that, and you joked about the president, and so therefore I'm going to really let you know. You shouldn't be. Politics, not in here. So I'm just already saving you the email. And so there are these arrogant things that come along. And I know we shouldn't wander off. And it's always the unplanned statements that get us in the most trouble. So arrogance. We get uptight when we're criticized. I love this one. Inventors of evil. He's like, I can't think of everything. So I know that someday in 2014, they're going to find some new way to do evil. And I think the inventors of evil, now I don't know that Paul knew this in his mind, but inventors of evil includes computers and iPhones and iPads because suddenly it invents ways to do more evil, right? When I was a kid, if you wanted to see pornography, you had to climb into the, into the treehouse of your neighbor's friends who stole away their dad's Playboy magazines. And so you had to risk your life and limb to climb up into the treehouse to see that garbage. Today, we have fourth and fifth and sixth graders on their iPhone inventing evil in ways that you and I could never imagine. Remember back in the good old days when Ricky and Lucy couldn't even be caught in the same bed together and they had to have twin beds? I remember my dad preaching about the Beatles when the Beatles came on the scene. Days like some big anniversary thing about the Beatles. And their first song, I want to hold your hand. I want to hold your hand. And we were aghast at these long-haired freaks singing about, I want to hold your hand. Because then, I want to hold your hand. You know what's next? Premarital sex. (laughs) We have invented evil to a much higher level. The concept of Ricky and Lucy in separate twin beds is just laughable today. Because unless a movie or a TV show has in bed and doing all the things we know that can happen, we have invented evil in a way that has expanded their definition of evil. Disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. God's wrath is stirred as we suppress this truth. God's wrath is, is, uh, is stirred as we exchange this truth that I've just gone through. We exchange it. Exchange that I'm not going to believe that stuff. So God says, if that's what you believe, then I'm going to give you over to that degrading passion. I'm going to give you over to that deprived mind in all those sinful behaviors. And just ramp it. You go for it. You go for it. I'm abandoning you. Because what happens is that we find people to approve of those things. We find our own new niche. We find our own church. We find our own neighborhood, our own friends who believe what I believe. So we have new churches popping up that are built around these truths. You can call them that. 
Because Romans 1.32 says not, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And so we have campaigns, we have picketers, we have those that are going to lobby for immoral behavior. We find those who approve of those things. Ten years ago, there's not a lot of people approving of homosexual marriage. Today, we are the dinosaurs. Suddenly, well, what happened? We didn't change. No, they exchanged truth to create new false truth. And so let me give you this case that I shared this with you some time ago. Second Chronicles 33.10. For some reason it says First Chronicles in your outline, but it's Second Chronicles. It's a case study of why God gives people over to sin. It's a great little section. Let me just read it real quickly. The Lord spoke to Manasseh, who is the king, unrighteous king, and his people, but they paid no attention. So God speaks truth, but they pay no attention. Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them in Israel, and they captured King Manasseh. They captured him with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. God gave Manasseh over to the enemy. He gave him over. He abandoned him. He put King Manasseh into hooks, bronze chains, and into Babylon from his hometown in Israel. When he was in distress, he feels pain. He entreated the Lord as God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Why does God give people over to degraded passions and deprived minds that like King Manasseh, they might experience distress or pain. And in that pain that they might call upon the Lord. And that in calling upon the Lord, God would respond. And that when God responds, as the very last line says, then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God, no longer exchanging the one true God for the little G-God called Manasseh and Manasseh's value systems that were so corrupt. Why does God give people over to sin? so that they can feel pain. Why pain? So that they can suddenly realize that God cares, God loves. Why? So that they can know He is the true God. These are not things to rub people's face into that. We're not here to condemn and judge. We're simply here to express biblical truth so that somehow in the course of being given over, abandoned, alone in their ways, they feel distressed to the point of saying, God, help me. See, that's our role. Help me. Now, what should our response be? 2, 1 through 4. It is this. Don't judge. Just don't judge. We want to judge, and some of the things I said this morning might sound judgmental, not intended to be. 2, 1 through 4 says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But he goes on to say, But do you suppose, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Remember, when God talked about the degrading passion of homosexuality, He then talked about the deprived mind of gossip, slander, insolence, hater of God, disobedience to parents. 
So if I'm going to judge someone there, I'm judging the fact that, yeah, I'm a sinner too. That we're all in this boat together. The idea of judging others is simply not my job, and I'm taking over God's job. God doesn't work that way. When you see people like this on the street or on the news, you think many people say, you know what? God hates sin. I'm convicted. I need to turn back to the Lord. No. Because they're not dealing with the root issue. They're dealing with sort of the the limb of the root. Remember, the root issue is exchanging the true God for my little G-God. And when I have my little G-God, I'm I'm my own God, and I'm going to worship the Dave God, then the Dave God creates these values that often are sinful. So don't judge the sin until little Dave God, like Manasseh, worships the one true God. Now I know that you are the Lord God. So when you've got a family or a friend in your family who is homosexual, who is insolent, who is a slanderer, who is a gossip, who is a hater of God, who is inventing evil, if you've got people and friends who are doing that, you need to bring them back to the one true God that they've exchanged for the little G-God. Because once they go back to the one true God, then suddenly it's prepackaged in a way that understands God's values. You just can't legislate people and judge people by calling them, God hates you. It just doesn't change people's behavior until they get back to the true God. So what do you do? You show kindness. Show kindness in Romans 2.4. I love this verse. Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The kindness of God leads you to repentance? How many of us came to repentance from the judgment of God? And how many of us came to repentance from the kindness of God? How many of us were more changed by our parents when they acted out of a heart of unconditional love and kindness as opposed to our parents working out of a system of judgment and condemnation? Like my friend, whose dear wife is in the hospital 28 times, Her father tried to change her by condemnation, only to devastate her adult years with emotional instability. But how much more would that same dad, if he had shown kindness, have a daughter today, emotionally stable and in love with an unconditional loving God in heaven? God's kindness leads us to repentance. A few weeks ago, I read a letter from a woman and from a journal that I have that talks about how she, as a lesbian in a university, came to know Christ as her Savior and changed from homosexuality to heterosexual relationships. I know, unimaginable in today's world. But she did it and she wrote about it, amazingly. As a result of that, a woman here this morning who attends our church wrote me her own letter of what God had done for her, having grown up also as a lesbian. And she spoke to me about it, and I said, would you mind writing to me kind of your journey on that? And so she did, and I I keep it anonymous. I just wanted to read a few things that she said to encourage your hearts that God's kindness leads us to repentance. She said, I appreciated the tenderness and the sensitivity with which you addressed her story, this woman that I addressed earlier. It tells me that you have compassion for people who struggle. 
Wasn't that, that the essence of her story? She expected to be criticized, judged, and condemned by the church, but instead they loved on her and accepted her right when she was at an extended grace and mercy to her. She was definitely in a wrestling match with the Lord, like Jacob and the angel of the Lord. But while she wrestled with the Lord, the Lord's people did not extend a finger of judgment, but arms of mercy. One of my major struggles have been trying to trust God. I trusted Him for my salvation at age 8, but I've not been able to trust Him as father, friend, or faithful. For decades, I tried to find within myself that switch that I could flip so I could trust Him. I knew I should trust Him, but I just couldn't get to there from here. A couple of years ago, I was doing a Beth Moore Bible study, and she made a statement that kind of turned my world upside down. She says, you can't trust God until you get to know God. And suddenly the light bulb went on. A big boulder had been blocking my path shifted. A corner was turned. Suddenly I was off the hook for trying to conjure up something that I couldn't just do. Flip a non-existent switch. Suddenly I saw a way to get from here to there to trust in God. Satan's been pretty good over the years at using guilt as a gnarled club to beat me up with every time I sinned or behaved in an unchristian-like manner. The guilt would derail me for days, weeks, months, even years. I've played lots of sports. One of the great things professional athletes can do is they forget their mistakes and they move forward even after their failures. And then it made sense to me that I felt the Lord was saying to me, when you ask me for forgiveness, you need to just let the sin and guilt go. And I do. As far as the east is from the west. And she continues for the second time. I shorten it. As that gal in that story said, it takes time. Sanctification is a process. My process feels mostly glacier-like, excruciatingly slow with not much to show for it. But the Lord recently reminded me, what you do get after the glacier melts, the sun, S-O-N, comes out and melts the frozenness away. You get Yosemite Valley. He's at work. He's not giving up on me. He said, a smoldering flax I will not snuff out, a bent reed I will not break. He said, I know your frame. I know that you are but dust. For he said, we are as workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for beforehand that we should walk in him. I want to acknowledge that on this spot of grace and his mercy, his love, his faithfulness, his strategic, simultaneously, his holiness and his awesomeness. One more sinner come to Christ out of the kindness of God. You and I are commissioned to be the kindness of God to a world that has been given over to degrading passions and a deprived mind. One of the challenges that we face, though, is the fact of the matter that we live in a world of darkness. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. What we do is bring light to that world. This room is going to go dark, and I want to drive home the fact that you and I are called to be the light that leads people to Christ. As the room goes dark, I want to read some passages of Scripture.
It's in Matthew 5. It says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. It gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus, He said to us these words, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. We live in that darkened world. In John 12, 46, I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Our kindness leads people to that world of light. And finally, in Isaiah 9-2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And ultimately that light is the cross of Jesus Christ. We bring people to that light. We follow the light of Christ. As we lead the way in kindness, we bring others to the same cross that we needed for our lives to be changed. Because we all grew up exchanging God for something, and now we want to go back to the one true God. Let me pray that we would be that light that leads others to the cross of Jesus Christ. Father God, I thank you that we can be the light that leads others to yourself. And as Jesus experienced and knew that he lived in a darkened world, and as Paul reminds us that our futile minds are darkened to your truth, we are still suppressing the truth. We are still exchanging the truth. And Lord, your wrath has not gone away. But in Jesus, in Jesus, we come back to you, the one true God, and live in the light of your truth, I pray, God, that we would be the people that shows the kindness of Christ that brings them to repentance, to know you as the one true God. Help us to be those people of light. In Jesus' name, amen.